this summer I had an opportunity to go with some of our students who have done leadership track, and uh, they, were, they had finished a year of leadership track, and we were down at the coast at our leadership retreat, and one of the things we did is we watched a video by a guy named uh, Admiral McRaven. He was, uh, I believe now he's one of the chancellors or something, University of Texas, but he did the commencement speech at the University of Texas this May. Now, Admiral McRaven is a former Navy SEAL, and his speech went viral. The video was on YouTube. People were hitting it all over the place because what he did is he did uh, 10 life lessons that he learned as a Navy SEAL. Now, one of those stories he told, it like grabbed my attention. If you don't know what a Navy SEAL is, a Navy SEAL, they're like special forces, military. They can like look at you and kill you. They're that awesome. You know what I mean? They, that, that kind of stuff. And in their training, they had to practice how to put bombs or explosives on ships that are like out in the harbor. Like if there was an enemy ship that we needed to sink, the SEALs would go in and they're the ones that could do it. They get in and get out and no one knows they're there. And in the practice, this is how they practice. They get in their wetsuit, they get in their gear. All they have is a compass to tell them north, south, east, west, a depth gauge to tell them how far underwater they are and their explosives. And they get dropped off in the ocean two miles or more away from the target. So the ship is two miles there. They just drop them in the middle of the ocean and these seals start swimming towards the target. And, and Admiral Raven was saying, as you, as you swim, you know, that distance, the moon's out. You know, if it's by a city, you have light from the city. And he said, as you're swimming under the surface, you can still uh, get, get some light that's kind of coming through the top of the ocean water. He said, it's somewhat comforting. But as you get closer to the, the ship, as you're moving into your target, this big, huge ship that's sitting in a pier, it begins to block out the lights from the city as you get closer. And the closer you get, it begins to even block out the moon, depending on where it's at. And he said, the water gets darker and darker and darker. He said, and then when you get to the ship, you have to put the explosives at the hull of the ship. You have to dive down to the very deepest portion of the ship. And he said, at that point, there is absolutely no light because you're deep. You're right there with a boat right in front of you. He said, it's so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Now, how do they, if they can't even see their hand in front of their face, how do they put charges on the ship? I don't know. They're Navy SEALs. They're awesome. But that's what they do. And he said, when you're down there, it's completely dark. He said, and then the boat's there and the hum of the engines that close to it underneath the water is deafening. And he said, when you're down there, he said, it's, it's scary. You can't see anything. You can, you can lose uh, what's up and what's down and who's there with you because you can't hear anything. You can't see anything. He said, it's absolutely overwhelming. And I'm sitting there listening because Navy SEALs, I mean, that's just what they do. I'm just captured by that. But I started thinking it, in a way, what he described, even though that is, it's different, but in a way he kind of described your life and my life. Now we're not swimming too much. I can't walk two miles, let alone swim two miles in the cold ocean. But we live in a world that has so much stuff coming out of so much noise and, and so much information. You know, in his story, it's pitch black. It's so much black. But we have so much stuff coming to us from media, from the internet, to music, from teachers, to parents, to youth ministers, to small group ministers, to our friends and, and all of these different things. And we just get information, information, information. And we get told you should do this and no, you shouldn't do that. And you should do this and you shouldn't do that. And if you do this, it'll work. And somebody says, no, if you do that, it won't work. And we get all of this stuff and it almost becomes overwhelming. 
it almost becomes like, man, I just, how, do I, how do I get through the clutter? Let me, let me give you some examples. You guys that are in high school and you're thinking about college. I mean, you've been told from a very early age that you've got to get great grades if you're going to get into college, right? I mean, you, if you get a B, you're going to have to go to Howard Payne where I went. You know, you got to get all A's or, or it's over. And, and so, man, I've got to get after my academics and I've got to take AP this and ACC that. And I've got to do all this so that I can achieve. And we've heard that and we've bought into it and we believe it. But then someone comes along and says, hey, you know what? I, and this is true. They go, I barely, I barely graduated high school. I mean, like, there, there was like you know, 600 people in my graduating class, and I was like 597. You know, I, bar- I barely made it, and, and I went to ACC for a year, and then I got serious, and I got all A's in ACC, and I got immediately into the University of Texas. And you go, well, man, I couldn't even do that. And you go, well, what's true? What, what, it, do we really have to get all these A's and AP class and ACC classes, or, or, or could we actually get where we want to go by just knocking it out a freshman year at a community college? I mean, you get two conflicting stories. You get people who tell you, for college, you, you need extracurricular activities, clubs, sports, because college recruiters, that's what they're looking at. They want to see that you're a well-rounded individual and you buy into it. And then you start having people tell you, you know what, you need to slow down. You don't have any margin in your life. You're going to burn out. And some of you guys feel that. And so it's this conflicting thing. To, to be a success, I have to say yes to everything. And then someone else tells you to say yes, you've got to say no to a lot of things. Well, what, what do we trust? You're, you're told, and there's some truth to this. You need to go to college because if you go to college, you got a better chance of making a better living. And so you hear that, and you go, okay, but then you see your older brother and your older sister's friends, and they just graduated from college, and they move back home because they can't get a job, right? And, and so it's like, well, what? who should I trust? I'm getting conflicting messages. Take dating. You hear me say all the time, you know, don't date till you're in college. That's not biblical, you're not going to be a sinner if you date while you're in high school um, or if you're in junior high. You're just dumb if you date you're in junior high. But I mean, it's, uh, it's not unbiblical, but you hear me say, hey, don't date until college because, and again, it's not biblical. It's just I know, I know from, from what the Bible teaches about sexuality and I know from how things work that if you start dating in high school, you have a much greater chance of, of not being a virgin when you get married. I know that. And so I say, hey, don't date until you're in college. But then you come to a collide small group. People who are my friends that we have recruited and you sit down and, and in that small group discussion, we'll have those on Sunday mornings. We want you to come do that because we're going to talk about these messages. And you have people and you sit in there and you go, you know what? I don't think I agree with Brett. And your collect small group minister goes, I don't either. I think he's wrong. And you go, okay, well, uh, who do I trust? What is right? And you go, hey, I've got a friend and they, they've dated 128 people and they're working on 129 right now and they're fine. But then I have another friend who's absolutely had their heart ripped out. And you go, what, what do I trust? How do I know what I'm supposed to follow? How do I know which information I'm getting is the one that I can wrap my life around? You take some controversial subjects. I talked about leadership retreat while we were there this summer. Uh, at night, we would go to the hot tub, and we wanted to have deep thoughts in the hot tub. And so we called it deep thought tub. See what we did there? You like that? Um, deep thought tub. And so we would talk about controversial subjects. We talked about the legalization of marijuana. We talked about the death penalty. We talked about, oh man, I can't remember, immigration. We talked about gay marriage. And so while we're in this conversation, um, I, I'm usually trying to take like the, the devil's advocate side. If everybody's kind of on one section, I'd start arguing the other direction. And so we're sitting in the hot tub. It's a big hot tub. There's like 
25 people in there, people from our group, people from other groups. And, and we're talking about gay marriage. And most people in the, in the conversation were saying, hey, I don't think it's right. So I was arguing for it um, in the debate just to get, get us thinking. And so y'all would have loved it. We're sitting there, and, and as the debate's getting heated, I, I, I'm saying out loud, and there's a bunch of strangers. I'm like, so you're telling me that my husband is this and that. And so we're in the conversation, and Allison's sitting next to me, and, there, and somebody said, well, if that's okay, the next thing you know is people will start, like, marrying their brothers and sisters. And they're like, so, so what if Allison wants to marry her brother? Is that okay? And so we're having this conversation, and so we're out loud, and I'm like, so Allison's married to her brother, and that affects my gay husband. And, and people are like, our, our people, are like, our like, students are like, I got to get out of here. I'm so uncomfortable, you know? One person's literally walking around the hot tub to all these strangers going, they're just having a debate. She's really not married to her brother, and he doesn't have a husband. Really, They're just talking, just trying to like, set everybody at ease. We have these controversial discussions, and in honesty, there were, some, there were some great points made on both sides. How do we know what we trust? comes to religion and what's right. Mormons, are they right? Buddhists, are they right? Muslims, are they right? You probably don't know this, but this is real, and this has been in the news here recently. The Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. That is not made up. It's been on the news. It's been on some of the late-night shows. That's just one of their, their posters. Behold the Flying Spaghetti Monster. He boiled for your sins. Be touched by his noodly appendage before it's too late. Now, we joke, and it was created by a guy in Oregon, but there are people now across the globe who are saying, hey, I affiliate myself with this church. They have a picture on their website of a guy who was sworn into office. He's like a mayor or something of his town. And his picture is him being sworn into his office and he's wearing a spaghetti strainer on his head because he's a part of the church of the flying spaghetti monster. Here's what they say. Hit that next one. Pastafarianism is a real religion. This is it's real. Pastafarianism is a real religion. Most of us do not believe a religion. Christianity, Islam, Pastafarianism requires literal belief in order to provide spiritual enlightenment. That is, we can be part of a community without becoming indoctrinated. There are many levels of belief. By design, the only dogma allowed in the church of the flying spaghetti monster is the rejection of dogma. That is, there are no strict rules and regulations. There are no rituals and prayers and other nonsense. Every member has a say in what this church is and what it becomes. To outsiders, it makes us hard to find. But here are some general things that we said about our beliefs. We believe pirates, the original Pastafarians, were peaceful explorers, and it was due to Christian misinformation that they have an image of outcast criminals today. We are fond of beer. Every Friday is a religious holiday. We do not take ourselves too seriously. We embrace contradictions, though in that we are hardly unique. Now, the guy who created this, you read this and you go, the guy's joking. He's joking. It's, it's, it's meant to be satire to religion. But he said over and over again, it's not satirical. This is as much a religion as anything else. So what's right? Buddhists? Christians? Flying spaghetti monsters? What, how do we know? And if you settle on Christianity, who is, who, who's got truth? Is it the Presbyterians, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, the Catholics? How do we know what to trust? Well, I want to give you one thing tonight, one thing to kind of to lean in on, and it's this. The Bible, the Bible is what gives us direction for our life. Now, when I say that, here's what else I know. 
I know that some of you in here, and I'm not, I'm not judging you by this. Some of you in here, you don't really, you're not sure if you trust the Bible. I mean, you look at the Bible and you go, hey, it's kind of hard for me to believe. There's a bunch of kind of mythical type stories in there. I mean, I'm sure it's great for vacation Bible school, but am I really, you really want me to believe Noah and an ark and all of that? And, and how, do I, how do I wrestle with Genesis and evolution? And so you go, you know, I'm just not sure the Bible is trustworthy. And yet you're telling me I can find direction for my life from it. Well, let me say this. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is true and trustworthy and errant. And I don't believe it simply because God said so, or because a Sunday school teacher told me, there are some real apologetic reasons why. So, so, some very rational reasons why. Now, tonight, we don't have time to get into all that. But if that's something you're wrestling with and you struggle with, here's an invitation. I would, because I love this. It's, it's my passion. Let's, let's go grab coffee. Let's go grab a Coke. Let's go to lunch. And we can talk about that. And, and I'm not going to try to convert you into my way of thinking. I'll share with you, though, the rational reasons why I and many other people trust the Bible. Because it's more than just God said so or it seems really good. But I know not everybody does, and that's okay. But here's what, here's, here's what I think we can assume tonight. One of two things. One, there are a lot of people in the room that do trust the Bible. And so when I say we can find direction for our life in the Bible, you're good. For those of you who don't, let, let me just offer this up, and I think you'll agree with me. Whether you believe the Bible is totally true, I think everyone in here would agree that the Bible does teach some great things. You may not believe it all, but you believe there are some people who are atheists, people who do not believe Jesus is God. Many of them look at Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus was a great guy. Jesus said some pretty incredible, they don't believe he's God, but they look at and they go, hey, he said some things that are great, moral. He said some things that have transformed the world. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if you go, hey, I don't believe the Bible, don't, don't check out right now. Let's just agree that the Bible at least says some things that can give direction for your life. I think we can all agree on that. And then let's look at Psalm 119, 105. I want to read to you what the psalmist said. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 150 verses. And one thing I want to encourage you guys to do this week is start reading Psalm 119, 20 verses a day. That's going to be a take-home. It's not going to come up anywhere else. So if you're a note writer, but let's do that. Let's commit, hey, we're going to read through Psalm 119 over the next couple weeks, 20 verses a day. That's not a lot and just see what this entire chapter says. It's the longest uh, chapter in the Bible. And look, we're gonna look at one verse. Psalm 119, 105 says this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Not only am I gonna ask you to read 20 verses a day, here's what I'm else gonna ask you to do over the next five weeks, over this series, Hashtag Basic, would you try to memorize that verse? In our small groups on Sunday morning, we're gonna talk, we're gonna practice it. it come in Sunday if you got it already. That's not a hard verse to memorize, but we're gonna start putting in a spiritual discipline into our youth ministry of taking the scripture and put it into our hearts. And so we're, gonna, we're, we're taking this verse for the next five weeks, Psalm 119, 105, gonna start memorizing it. But let's, let's think about it for a second. When this verse is written, remember this, it's written at a time when there's no such thing as electricity, okay? There's not, you don't go and flip your lights on in your house. When you're traveling down the road, you don't get in your car and, and turn on the headlights. And then when, when there's nobody in front of you, turn on the bright so you can see even further. This is a people who use the sun and the moon. And at night, they're using a lamp. They're using some type of 
artificial light, whether it be fire or something like that, and it becomes very crucial to them. Imagine at night, if there were no city lights, and you had to walk from here to Wolf Ranch, and there was no Highway 29. There's just a path through the woods. That, that could be kind of scary, right? I mean, like, okay, it's, it's dark. And so they have this lamp, and this lamp is crucial to somebody of, of this period because what it does is it helps them see obstacles in the path. It helps them see if there's a hole in the middle of the road that keeps them from spraining their ankle and laying there all night. It, it helps them see if there's danger nearby, if there's somebody hiding in the bushes trying to get them. <coughs> I mean, and they may have hit them with the lamp. I don't know what they're doing. But I mean, at least, at least they can see it coming. You know, they're not just blindsided. They can see someone. If they're walking the path and they're supposed to go to the left and, and there's a path that goes to the right and the one goes to the left and they know it, but as they're walking, they miss the path to the left and they go, they go the complete wrong way. This lamp is absolutely crucial. I think we can even say to their survival in a lot of times. And so when the psalmist writes this, he says, your word, the word of God, it's a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. This Bible is what helps me see obstacles. This Bible is what helps me see danger. This Bible is what helps me see when I'm walking along the path and, and, and I know I need to go this way when that time comes, that when that time comes, that path becomes clear to us because we are students of the Bible. So he says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto his path. It's very important. I, I, I tell you, most of the injuries in youth ministry that I've seen have come in the dark. I remember we had a, young, a, a guy, he's uh, in the core at Texas A&M now. His name's Caleb Miller. And when Caleb was in junior high, we were out at Highland Lakes Encampment, and we're, we're playing Mission Impossible. And he's running, and as he falls, he, he, in, he gets injured. And so they call me, they're like, hey, and I, so I told some of this, you guys this story before. They, they call me, hey, I think we need to take Caleb in to the hospital. And so I go over, because I'm like, man, it's like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, this would be inconvenient. I go over, and I'm like, I really don't want to take him to the hospital. He's sitting down, and I look, and, and his, he's, I'm looking at his shin, and he's got like some scrapes. I mean, like scrapes that maybe my eight-year-old might cry about it, but he's like 13, and, and you know, he's a pretty tough guy. And I'm like, Seriously? I'm like, rub some dirt on it, you know? I mean, like, well, I'm not taking you to the hospital because you scratched yourself, you little girl, you know? And, and there's an adult with him, and he's sitting there, and he's got his hands on top of his knees, and he goes, oh, no, not that, this. And he takes his hand off of the thing that's covering up his knee, like the top of his knee. <laughs> it looked like somebody had taken a melon scooper and, like, scooped part of his leg out. And, I, yeah, I know, and I'm like, oh, oh, and I'm like, oh my gosh. They're going to have to amputate, you know? I mean, that's like, goodness. And so, I mean, we take him. Well, here's the deal. He's running in the dark with no lamp for his path and no light for his feet. And he trips and falls and hits a jagged piece of asphalt and pops his leg open. Okay? So I know, gross. But stay with me. Spiritually and in our life, it's the same thing. The psalmist says, if you don't want to crash and burn, not physically, if you don't want to crash and burn spiritually, if you don't want to have that type of, of moral failure, life failure, relationship disaster, you need the Bible to give direction for your life because it's a lamp and a light into your path. So I know not everybody agrees with the whole thing, but we can agree that there's some things in here that can transform our lives. So what do we do? Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I, I'm going to give us three things I want us to start processing through and working with. 
as we talk about a spiritual discipline of a devotional, a spiritual discipline of what some of us call a quiet time, it, it is the habit of getting into the Word of God on a regular basis. Here's the first thing I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to make a habit out of Bible reading. Now, a habit's hard. Several years ago, there was a guy named Maxwell Maltz. He was a plastic surgeon. And, and this is what he discovered. When he would do surgery on somebody, like he would go and like work on someone's nose, give them a nose job or something like that, that they would, after the surgery, they would look at themselves in the mirror and their brain would, would, have, would, would struggle because for all of their life, they'd seen one image and now they see another one. And, and what he determined, he says, it takes at least 21 days for somebody to get used to that. And then he started looking at other research when people had lost an, a limb, they were amputated. He, he figured out this. It takes at least 21 days for people not to have that feeling. They say you have like a, a ghost arm. Like if you lose your arm, you feel like you still have an arm for at least 21 days. It's, 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 your brain is kind of reworking itself. And then he started thinking about habits and, and things, how he changed in his life. And he said, you know, it takes me at least 21 days. Well, he wrote about that. And some people took it and they started this kind of adage and what they said, and we've kind of bought into it as a culture, that it takes 21 days to start a new habit. So if you're going to start working out, make a habit of going to the gym, you've got to go 21 days in a row and become a habit. If you want to stop cussing, you've got to go 21 days without cussing and become a habit. But here's what we found out. That wasn't true. What he said actually was it takes at least 21 days. Statistics say a habit forms for the average person after 66 days. Yeah. So here's what I'm saying. I'm encouraging you. I'm lifting the bar here. If you're going to make a habit out of getting into the Word of God, we're talking about two months of getting into the Bible for it to become a habit. That's going to be hard, no doubt. But I will also say this to you. Your goal is to make a habit because we find direction for our life in God's Word. And 66 days of getting into it, we find this direction. But at least do something. At least do more this week than you did last week. I mean, if you're not on for 66 days, take some baby steps. And if you did three days last week, do five. If you did one day, do two. Let's start getting into the Word and creating this habit so that we can start finding direction for our life. Here's the second thing I'm going to suggest you do. Now watch my time. Is leverage technology. I mean, we've, we've all seen technology that can be bad, Right? I mean, some of you guys, <laughs> I don't know why I'm pointing fingers at you, because it's me. Some of you guys are like me. You're addicted to a phone. You like sit with a group of people around the table and one person's text message goes off, ding, and everybody reaches for their phone. I'm like, what? You stop. I drive. I've said this before. Just drive. I stop at a stoplight and I'm trying to break this habit. I find myself looking at my phone. Did I miss something in the three minutes that it took me to get here? It can be a bad thing. But it can also be a good thing. Technology doesn't have to be bad. I go to New Orleans every year, and I've been doing that for years. One of the first years and I was there, I'm driving, and, and this was before GPSs. This was before, like, Yahoo Maps, and, and so somebody's mapped it out, and I'm driving in a van behind, like, this caravan, and we get separated over the eight-hour drive to New Orleans. And we're not too far behind them, but one of the guys I'm following, he's already gotten to the mission place where we're supposed to stay. And, and I'm kind of coming into town, and I know I'm kind of in the area, but I don't know where to exit. And so I call him, and he's like, you need to exit such and such street. And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't see such and such street. And he's like, okay, it's the Superdome, the New Orleans Superdome. It's big. You see it? You can't miss it? I'm like, yeah, I see it. And he goes, okay, is it to your left? And I'm like, yeah, the Superdome's to my left. And he goes, okay, as soon as the Superdome is to your left, you'll see this exit. 
And I'm like, well, I just passed the Superdome, and I don't see the exit. And he's like, okay, well, turn around. So I turn around, and I go back and do it again. And, and as I'm going, he's like, okay, is it on the left? I'm like, yep, I'm approaching it. And he goes, okay, you're looking for it. I'm like, it's not there. And he's like, I just did it. I, j- I just drove it. And I'm like, well, I'm driving it now. And we're, we're like arguing back and forth. You realize, we didn't, but when you're driving this direction, the Superdome's on your left, and when I was turning around to go back and do it again, the Superdome was still on my left. And so I'm, I'm like passing the wrong way. I'm like, it is on my left. And he's like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You're an idiot. I'm just on the wrong side of the Superdome on my left. And so, I mean, just going crazy. But now, technology's not a bad thing. Now, I just put in an address and hit it. And this little lady with an English accent tells me everything to do. And if I don't do it, if I'm like, no, I'm going to keep on driving. Forget you. We beat you in the Revolutionary War. I don't have to listen to anything you say, English woman. If I drive past, she is going to tell me, rerouting, and she's going to send me back another way to get to where I want to go. Technology isn't bad. Use something like version on your Bibles. Use leverage technology. There's devotional guides on there that will help you get in the Bible, and they'll remind you. You can set it up to remind you every day to read. Do it. Use it. We're asking you in your Clyde small groups this Sunday as a small group to, to pick together a devotional plan to do, something that everybody can do. If you all have cell phones, you can use version. If you don't, use something else that you can all use. Start a habit, leverage technology, and here's the last thing. Make application. You're not just reading the Bible to read the Bible. As you read it, you ask, hey, God, what do I do here? God, what does this mean? I'm sorry about the popping. I don't know what's going on here. We had to switch microphones. What do I do with this? I mean, if you've got a lamp and you're walking down a dark path and you're walking and there's a rattlesnake in the middle of the road and the lamp shows it to you, you don't go, whew, good, rattlesnake, and then walk onto it. No, you, you apply what you've learned. You, the lamp illuminated something, you did something. I'm going to show you a quick video. It's great. Make sure the, the sound is up for this. This is the, one of the best videos to show the difference between knowledge and application. Isn't that great? I mean, is there not a better picture of the difference between knowledge and application? I mean, the guy knows what to do, but he's not doing it. It's not just a habit of reading scripture. It's not just leveraging technology. It's, it's doing it. So let me close with this. There was a lady. Her name was Mrs. Shirtlift. And Mrs. Shirtlift was 75 years old. And as a 75-year-old lady, she went into a used bookstore in California where she lived to buy a Bible. Didn't want to pay $50 for one. Went to buy one. And she buys this used Bible, checks it out. She goes home, and she opens up to start reading it. There is, there's some, some notebook paper inside the Bible. You know, and that's not real odd for you know, used books. They bought it, put it on a shelf. And as she, 75 years old, opens up the Bible, she opens up the paper, and she recognizes the handwriting. When she was a child, she wrote a paper, a four-page paper to get a merit badge for Girl Scouts or something like that that she was in. And at 75 years old, now several decades later, she's looking at the, letter, the, the paper she wrote when she lived in Kentucky. As a child in Kentucky, she wrote this, buys a Bible in California when she's 75 years old, and there it is. That's freaky. I mean, that's like weird, like crazy stuff. And she said as she read it, she just began to weep and cry and think about her life and everything that was there. And what I'm going to suggest to you is this. 
not in the same way that she found her life inside that Bible, not in the exact same way. But as you begin to read the Bible, as you begin to find direction for your life, you're going to start seeing your life in the people of the Bible. You're going to start seeing struggles that other people had in Scripture, and you're going to go, that's me. Jesus is going to say things, his words are going to apply directly to your life. You're going to see principles that you're going to go, man, that's, 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 that's what I need. You're going to read Psalms where it's an emotional song where you go, man, I feel that. And you're going to find your life in the Scripture. That's why it's so important to get into the Word because it's going to reveal ourselves to us and help us find direction for our life. So this week in our small group, Sundays at 9.30 in here, we have a smaller group at 11, but 9.30 is when most everybody comes. We're going to talk about this some more. We're going to start memorizing Scripture. This is a great time. A school year start to make a commitment to get involved in a small group and start talking through what does it look like for me to start getting into my Bible and seeing how it gives direction for my life. So I want to invite you there. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to come up and do, uh, Ryan, are we going to do one more song? Yeah, we'll do one more song and then I'll do some announcements. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the Bible. And God, I pray that as we read it this week, that some of us would read it more than we have, and as we read it, we'd make application, and that we would let this word transform us, that we'd be different because your word has given us direction for our life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.